Genesis. We're moving along Genesis chapter 29. If you do not have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can pick that up and you'll be with us in Genesis chapter 29. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. I'm sure uh, many of you, as you're turning there, have heard of the dynamic duo Penn and Teller. Now, these guys have been going at it in magic for a long time now, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 years. And, you know, what tends to happen over that duration of time as you study your craft, you perform your craft, is you become exceedingly knowledgeable about your craft. Uh, These guys, for the most part, have seen it all. They've written books on it. And indeed, if there is some kind of variation... They've seen that too. That's what makes their show fool us so enjoyable. Lesser-known musicians will come and they will take a stab at trying to fool the foolers. Uh, The guy on the screen there is a uh, magician named Shin Lim, and he uh, performed a card variation trick with sleight of hand uh, that won him national recognition by coming onto this show. You know, not many magicians are able to pull it off. It's hard to pull the wool over the eyes of the guys that wrote the book on the subject, right? But one magician who has fooled them said that one of the keys to fooling an expert magician is to take a trick that they would be familiar with. So they would understand the trick, they would know the inner working mechanics of it, and he says, you just twist the logic a little bit on them. And so when you stand up there, they're anticipating this, but they get that. That's the difference. Not many people can do it. Most people come onto this show and they receive a little bit of embarrassment, but a great opportunity to showcase their skills. As I think about this show, and then we move into Genesis chapter 29 through chapter 31, Jacob is going to be spending the next 20 years of his life on an episode of Fool Us, only the master fooler that he has a run-in with is, well, a pretty deceptive guy, and he does not have Jacob's best interests in mind. So when he first arrives to the place that he's now traveled from Beersheba to Haran, 550 miles, the trickster, the manipulator, The small-time fooler meets his match. And uh, the question that Jacob will be facing as he goes through this is, can I fool the ultimate fooler? So here we go. We're going fast this morning. Some of this is going to be Reader's Digest version. Three chapters of the Bible in Genesis. Last week we only covered 12 verses, 40 minutes. This week we've got about an hour and a half. So here we go. You ready? Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 3 is where we pick up. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people east. And he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, Three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Now, when you're looking at Hebrew narrative, 
you have to understand something about how this works, okay? It is called historical narrative. So the Hebrews are saying, are holding uh, two things in two hands here. In one sense, this is completely historical, what we're looking at. Uh, They are not using things like embellishment or twisting the truth a little bit to make the story sound a little better. But at the same time, it is not written in a lackluster way, which means that Moses tells a good story. And people who tell good stories use literary devices. One of the literary devices that Moses uses in this chapter is called a type scene. A type scene is when the description of event in one person's story follows an almost identical pattern to a similar event in another person's story. So, in Genesis, when patriarchs are about to get married, they find wives at wells in Haran. That's how this happens, okay? They don't need to go on a ChristianMingle.com dating service. If you are a patriarch, you go to a well and you will instantly find a wife if you are in Haran. Now, the most important aspect of these type scenes is not the events that they share in common, but how they differ from the established pattern. You've seen pictures like this and they ask you the question, can you see what is different between the two pictures? And every time I look at them, I see like one thing and then they say there's seven. So we're going to look at Genesis 29 and ask ourselves the question, what's different between Genesis 29 and Genesis 24? So the story continues. Jacob said to the shepherds, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. Guys, get out of here. I'm about to meet a girl. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban with his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now I notice a couple of differences here. One difference is when Abraham's servant goes to the well, he's alone. Jacob comes upon the scene and finds a bunch of lazy shepherds sitting around. A second difference is there's no act of strength in the first story, but in this story, well, Jacob could be competing on a strongman competition. I hope you understand that this stone, three shepherds are standing there and say, we need to wait for more guys to move this thing. Jacob goes up and he moves it all by himself. He's a buff dude. Three, Rebecca waters the animals for the servant, but in this story, Jacob waters the animals for Rachel. Now those are differences, mind you. They're big differences. However, these are not the biggest different difference in the story. 
I want you to ask yourself the question, how did Abraham's servant and Jacob involve God in the situation? You look back at Genesis 24, 12, and Abraham's servant comes to the well, and the first thing he does is pray this, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And then he asks for God to reveal character in a woman. And when he finds that woman of character, he concludes the prayer, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham. The Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Now look at Jacob's prayer in Genesis 29. Oh, wait. That's right, he doesn't pray. He doesn't ask God for help. He doesn't even acknowledge that God has gotten him to this place. He's traveled 550 miles from Beersheba to Haran, and here he is at this needle in a haystack well, and he meets the right girl. I want to pause for a moment and ask what's the big difference? Well, the big difference is reliance on God versus a complete lack of prayer. Are we going to uh, see, we're going to see how this difference proves detrimental in Jacob's life. It's a difference that sets up the next 20 years of Jacob's life. How about you? When it comes to those big decisions, those moments, those life-altering times that God presents you with. Do you rely on God or do you just simply allow the events to unfold? Now that's one of those hard questions to ask. You might come back at me and say, well, Rob, what does it look like to rely on God? And I'm going to say to you, well, I can't hand you a checklist and you can just check boxes and say that you've relied on God. But it is one of those things that when you're looking at someone do it, you see it, right? So when we look at Genesis 24, it's very clear and evident that that servant is relying on God. And when we look at Genesis 29, it is very clear and evident that Jacob is not. No checklist needed. You just see it. Think about all those decisions. We've talked about these before. Who are you going to marry? What college will you choose to attend? What circle of friends will you run around with? Where will you attend church? What will your career path be? Or maybe you're thinking about changing career path. That's a huge decision. How many children do you intend to have? Where will, you go to sc- where will they go to school? What activities will they be involved in? When are you going to retire? How are you going to retire? How are you going to spend the next so many years of your life in retirement? Decision after decision, major decisions, some decisions affect the next 20 years of your life. And that's what we see with Jacob. He approaches the place where patriarchs meet their wives and he doesn't ask for guidance. The story picks up in verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Jacob said, or Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. 
and he stayed with him a month. Now, unfortunate for Laban, Jacob doesn't come with all of these camels strapped down with gold. He just has himself. But, you know, Laban's the type of guy that he can find a solution for anything, can't he? So, with his lack of prayer, he is unprepared to meet his match. Jacob, the cleverest of the clever, the big fish in a little pond, is now swimming in the ocean, and there are sharks in the water. Laban is going to change this man's life forever. The story picks up in verse 15, and they strike a deal together. Laban says, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages will be. Now, if you can look past the fact that Jacob's wages will be one of Laban's daughters, this is actually kind of a romantic little scene here, okay? Um, he exposes his heart. He's fallen in love with one of these girls, Leah and Rachel, the two daughters of Laban. Their names mean cow and ewe, respectively. So if you've ever had a problem with how your parents named you, just think about these two girls and you'll feel a lot better. Uh, Jacob loved Rachel over Leah because of her beauty. Verse 17 explains Leah's eyes were weak meaning they didn't grab your attention. She wasn't a standout in the room. But Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance, so he proposes a will-work-for-marriage situation. In verse 18, he says to Laban, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter. Now, seven years, that's a good offer. A typical dowry is about three to four years. Laban's like, what a deal. Too bad this guy's good sense is being blinded by something goofy like love. And so the Bible sums up this period of service in a rather beautiful way. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, no man could be a bad man who loved as Jacob loved Rachel. And you know, you really haven't been in love if you don't understand this verse. I was, next service, my father-in-law is going to be coming in. His name's Gary, and you guys don't tell him, but he could have gotten seven years out of me if he wanted. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking, right? <laughs> So when the time of Jacob's work had finished, he approaches Laban and asks for the marriage. Now, that's one of those things you shouldn't have to do, right? You shouldn't have to, you hate to put it in these terms again, but go to your boss and ask for your paycheck. But he does. Now, long story short, this is how I understand what happens next. Laban makes sure that Jacob's wine glass is full the entire wedding night. When Jacob is appropriately at ease from drink and it has grown sufficiently dark in the evening, Laban brings Jacob to his tent and then somehow he swaps Leah and Rachel in the middle of the night. How did this happen? <laughs> well, I'm not 100% sure. Maybe he restrained Rachel and I suspect, here's what I think, I think over those seven years, Leah fell in love with Jacob. 
She probably believed that Jacob would just be mad at first, but given a little time, a little distance after this ploy, well, he would learn to grow to love her. It's hard being the sister that no one looks at, that no one thinks romantic thoughts about, that no one wants to marry. I mean, poor girl. The deception would blow up in her face. She would live with Jacob in a loveless marriage for the rest of her life. But here's one of the beautiful things that happens all the time in the Bible. You see, while Jacob will overlook Leah and treat her as a second-class wife, God will not overlook her. As you read Genesis 29:31 to 30:24, it's like watching a, a bad episode of Desperate Housewives. It's full of rivalry and, and plotting, and, and they're even like bartering for who gets to children in the room um, sleep with Jacob. So what you learn, though, through this story is that Jacob was in love with the wrong wife. You see, Leah ends up giving birth to Levi and Judah, the priestly line, the kingly line. Leah becomes one of the mothers of Jesus, which means God elevates this woman that her own husband didn't love and puts her in this special succession plan that leads all the way to the Savior of the world coming to us and saving us from our sins. Friends, if you've ever felt unloved, uncared for, unthought about, just remember Leah. God saw her. God knew her. God loved her. Well, back to the wedding night. We'll fast forward through the TVMA content to when Jacob wakes up in the morning with a slight hangover and a big surprise. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, in this society, when a marriage has been consummated, uh, that marriage is now binding. Leah and Jacob are married. There's no changing that. Now, imagine how betrayed you would feel in the morning, how angry you would be. You would want to go and wring that father-in-law's neck. You would certainly want to go and talk to that good-for-nothing and give him a piece of your mind. And that's what Jacob does in verse 25. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Interesting words coming out of the mouth of Jacob. Laban says, It is not so done in my country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Now, the Bible silences Jacob's rebuttal. Do you know why? Because Jacob has no moral authority. He has nothing to say in this moment. Jacob deceived Esau and Isaac. Laban deceives Jacob. Jacob saw nothing wrong with walking into a blind man's tent and deceiving him. Laban sees nothing wrong with deceiving a man who is blind by drink and dark. Jacob ignores the principle of the firstborn right now. 
he is forced to honor that principle. Esau was forced to live with the results of Jacob's deception. Now Jacob would be forced to live with the results of Laban's deception. You see, the Bible, while it knows nothing of that concept out there called karma, we're not living an endless repeat loop of lives that all of our good deeds and bad deeds carry forward into those endless circle of lives. It does, though, it does know a God who has a moral memory. God sees what happens. God remembers. And there is a system of retribution in place. Galatians 6, 7 Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So now Jacob's looking at the shark and he sees an older version of himself some 30 or 40 years later and what he could become. I'm sure that this is the first time he feels what it is like to be on the receiving end of manipulation. The first time that he has that bitter feeling of being betrayed and and there's nothing that you can do to undo the situation. You just have to live with the consequences of it. A decision that someone else made for you and now it's yours to carry. You see, Jacob is still not a changed man entirely. We noted last week we had those two chairs on the stage and We noted that God's purpose in our life is to take us from that old, broken-down chair and to refinish us into something beautiful and complete. But that process doesn't happen instantaneously. God would need to trim the man. God would need to work on the man's character. God would need to teach him certain things such as humility. And he would also need to teach him how to rely on himself And God would use Laban to do that. Do you guys have a Laban in your world? Come on, be honest. Why does God put Labans in our path? I read an illustration that helped me to understand this a little bit. It was back in the turn of the century when uh, the Northeast cod industry was starting to become popular in the West Coast, and so they would want that codfish transported from east to west. Now, you know during this time that transportation was a lot slower. So no matter what they would try to do, whether they would uh, flay the fish and put it on ice or keep the fish live in tanks, by the time the fish got to the West Coast, well, it lost its flavor. It just didn't have the same texture and consistency that you would want out of good uh, codfish. So one brilliant chap comes up with an idea. He decides that the codfish meat would only be strong if the codfish was moving in the tank. So they take the codfish's natural enemy and they put it into the tank. It's called an ocean catfish or a wolffish. Kind of one of those faces that only a mother could love. You see that little guy up there? And when he was placed into that tank, he would chase that codfish from east coast to west coast and you guessed what happened. When the fish got there, They tasted good. They had the consistency that you would expect. If anything, they were better than ever. You see, God places Labans in your life to keep you alert, on your toes, 
active. Maybe God has better and bigger purposes in your life than your comfort. Maybe God wants to show you your blind spots through another person who has a deeper character flaw than you do. Maybe God wants to more deeply entrench your convictions in your heart. Or maybe God wants to teach you the teaching of Jesus, love your enemies. That's why God puts Labans in our lives. And so we shouldn't complain while the wolffish is swimming in the tank with us. We need to learn how to trust God in the midst of that dynamic. So Jacob will have to do this. It's 14 years now. 14 years of swimming in the tank with Laban, and he begins to truly observe the blessing of God in his life. He has 11 sons, he has a daughter, no material possessions to speak of, so he goes up to his loving father-in-law and he asks if he can leave so that he can strike out on his own and start a new family, but Laban makes a very important observation. He says, The Lord has blessed me because of you. You need to stick around, Jacob. And Jacob likewise says, verse 30 of chapter 30, for you had little before I came and has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. Now, we know that Laban is not going to pass on a good deal, especially if that good deal is benefiting him. And so he says, what shall I give you for you to stay? Notice that Laban, what he didn't say. He didn't say, Jacob, I'd love you to stay around. I've just, I've grown fond of the little pitter-patter of grandchildren feet around the tents. I love my daughters and I want them near me. I've even grown fond of you, young chap. No, 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 no. Laban is what we call a flat character, okay? When you figure him out, there is not much depth to the man. His overriding interest is one thing, Money, and he will do whatever it takes to get money. You can count on it. But that doesn't mean that the man isn't shrewd or wise. So Jacob, remember what we talked about earlier, the trick of fooling the fooler? You have to take a piece of knowledge that they have taken for granted and add a twist to it. So Jacob proposes a seemingly foolish deal. We pick up in verses 31 to 33 of chapter 30, where Jacob tells us about this, or the Bible does. So Jacob says to him, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, it shall be counted as stolen. Now, this is one of those deals where When someone proposes it, you have to put on that that poker face so that you don't just laugh out loud in their face as they're saying something so foolish to you. Back in this culture, the shepherds, if they were watching over the sheep, their wage would be 10 to 20% of the flock. It's a pretty good deal, but if you add in a percentage of the wool and the milk, it's an even better deal. Genetically speaking, the sheep tended to be white 
the goats tended to be a dark color, whether brown or black. So these mottled, speckled, striped sheep that Jacob is going to have be his wages, a small percentage of the overall income. I mean, just imagine the smile on Laban's face. Deal, he says. I can't help if if this guy is foolish and he's uh, writing his own check. (laughs) He walks away. His grin turns into a chuckle. His chuckle turns into a roar of laughter. And besides that, when Laban leaves, of course, he doesn't want any chance for Jacob to win, so he takes all of those sheep out of the flock anyway and moves away three days from him. All right, so that's the situation. Here you have no sheep in the flock. Laban's stolen them away, and the genetics are against you. The experiment begins... Chapters, uh, chapter 30, verses 37 to 42, describes this process where Jacob would approach breeding in an odd way. It says that he places peeled poplar branches in the watering trough so that when the animals were in heat and they would see the branch, it would cause the, the babies to be the color that he was hoping for. Um, There are two explanations for what Jacob's doing there. One, he's being superstitious. They they believed in this culture that if they saw that, then that would affect the outcome, that the child would be, or the baby would be in that appearance. The second explanation is that he's peeling the sticks as an expression of his faith that God was going to produce the type of animal that he would want now, I'm not 100% sure what's going on here. Some of this stuff, you just think to yourself, wow, um, I didn't live in that time. I don't fully understand it. But here's what my sense tells me. You see, I believe there's still a lot of the old Jacob in the new Jacob. So we have here a situation of diluted faith, okay? We do this, right? We, we do things with diluted faith. I'm going to trust God, but I'm going to hedge the bets as well, right? So here's what he does He believes God, he uses the sticks, but along the way, Laban being Laban changes the deal, right? That's what he does, probably mid-deal. And he would create a dynamic where the wrong sticks are being used at the wrong time, and yet the right babies are being born. So put that uh, explanation in Rob's opinion column. You can write that in your notes, Rob's opinion. And uh, that's how I understand it. So regardless of what happens, Jacob observes God's faithfulness over these six years. Verse 43, the man increased greatly, had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, donkeys. And that was the logic that Laban was missing. He knew the math. He knew how the babies ought to be born. But he did not understand the twist of logic that God would be involved in the situation. So Laban stacks the deck in his favors, uh, but God is blessing Jacob, and he stacks the deck in Jacob's favor. So 20 years now, right? 20 years in Haran. Uh, Jacob in Genesis 31, we're in that chapter of the Bible now, moving along, like I said, is different than Jacob in Genesis 29. Remember Genesis 29, Jacob doesn't pray. 
doesn't acknowledge God's hand in his arrival. He just seemed to let life happen, even when it came to big decisions like who he would marry, and that would affect the outcome of 20 years of his life. But observe Jacob in Genesis 31. It begins with a dilemma for Jacob. It says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. You see, if Jacob's situation was precarious with Esau, it is downright dangerous now. He had only the the clothes on his back and he could flee, but now he has 12 children, four wives, all of these possessions with him. You just can't run away. Yet in verse 3, the text tells us that the Lord speaks, return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred, and I will be with you. What do you think Genesis 29 Jacob would have done in this moment? I don't know. But Genesis 31, Jacob relies on God in the situation. Uh, Verses 4 to 13, he approaches his wife and talks about how God has been faithful over the past 20 years. He recounts how God's been faithful to him and blessed him. Laban has been a taskmaster to him, a cruel taskmaster. And yet Jacob chooses not to cheat him chooses to be righteous, chooses to serve faithfully. You know what that means for us as Christians? The quality of your job should not be contingent on your like or dislike of your boss. You should not give your job your best because your job is giving you something in return that you want. You're not working for your boss. You're not ultimately working for your company. You're not working for the fringe benefits that you get from the job. Colossians tells us who we're working for. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So any day that I walk into my job and I underperform or I passively, aggressively do things because I don't like my coworkers, I don't like my company, I don't like my boss, I am doing those things to not them but Jesus. And that's a problem. You know, as Christians, our places of work should look at us and even if they're cheating us, say that guy or that girl is an extraordinary worker. And that opens up a pathway of conversation to talk to them about Jesus. And plus the scriptures say in verse 25 of Colossians 3, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. So it's not your place to to pay them back. It is God's place to do that. And that's what Jacob acknowledges in Genesis 31.9. God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. You see that? 
God's justice hits Laban where it hurts, the wallet. So the story moves rapidly. Verses 17 to 21, Jacob flees. He brings his family with him. Somewhere in that exchange, Rachel goes into Laban's house, steals the household gods. Why? Probably one of three reasons. One, Laban used it for divination purposes. He might use those gods to track them some way. That's what she believes. I don't think that's right. Um, or she does it because those gods would serve as some kind of uh, voucher for her to come back and say, I have claim to inheritance. Or three, most likely, she just hated his gods. All right, so they leave, they get out, they go. Laban catches winds of it three days later, verses 22 to 25, and he has this murderous intent, military language as he pursues, uh, fled, pursued, overtook, pitched tents. If God does not show up in this situation, there will be violence. Verse 24, God does show up. He says to Laban in a dream, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So then when Laban confronts Jacob, when he finally comes to him, there is an attitude adjustment that has taken place. Laban comes with this big peacock dramatic speech. Oh, I can't believe you did this to me. You ripped my heart from me. I wanted to kiss the kids. I wanted to kiss my daughters. I wanted to play music all night long and have drinks with you. We all know it's a bunch of hogwash. And then he says, plus you stole my gods. They search the tents. They don't find the gods. Jacob brings a countercharge to Laban. He claims that one, he has served him faithfully for over 20 years. True. Two, Laban dealt falsely with him, repeatedly changing his wages 10 times. True. Then Jacob says, had God not been with Jacob, Jacob would have gone away empty-handed. And Laban proves that point in verse 43 when he says, the daughters are mine, the children are mine, the flocks are mine. All that you see is mine. Again, what Jacob says is true. Had God not intervened, Laban would have left the man with nothing, maybe not even his life. However, with God's presence, Laban is only left with the decision to have a non-aggression treaty with Jacob. Now, I don't want to make Jacob into someone he's not and tell you that he has just become this perfect man in Genesis chapter 31, but you do see the grace of God working in the man's life. He is definitely a different man. His faith has deepened. He's learning in profound and powerful ways the, the power of God and the authority of God. And he learns that the wolffish cannot strike because God has said no to the wolffish. And so he makes a treaty with the wolffish. Well, as we conclude this elaborate story, we've gone through a lot of stuff this morning. I want to ask you one final question. Why does God send Jacob to Haran? You might be thinking to yourself, well, didn't Jacob run to Haran? Yes, but God is sovereign. Jacob would not have been in Haran if God did not want him to be there. So why does he send him there? Why does he have to meet his match? 
Well, there's a couple of lessons I think Jacob needed to learn. Lesson one, he needed to learn how to rely on God. Lesson two, Jacob needed to learn how his sin hurt Esau. Lesson three, Jacob needed to develop character through unjust treatment. Lesson four, Jacob needed to experience God's provision and protection. You see, these are the lessons that can only be learned in Haran, which means that Jacob's not the only person that needs to go to Haran. Let me give you a definition of what Haran is. Haran is that place in your life where you are experiencing suffering and difficulty. You see, God sends believers to Haran to do the work that only Haran can do with them. It could be a wolfish in your life. It could be your marriage, but don't call your husband or wife a wolfish because that's not going to help the situation out. It could be someone that you're working with. I don't know what it is for you, but God has a specific purpose and intention for sending you there. And he explains it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you know what that means? That God is teaching you, like Jacob, to rely on him. To understand how your sin affects another person. To deepen your character through hard times. To go through those hard times and experience his provision and his protection over your life. Some of those lessons cannot be learned unless you go to Haran. The beautiful thing is even when you go to Haran, God is with you there. He's not just in the promised land. He's the God of the universe. He's everywhere. So let's make this personal. Do you have a program or a piece of paper to write on? If not, you have a brain, don't you? I want you to pick that up and we're going to write two things out as we consider and reflect on this passage the first thing I want you to write on your program is I want you to write down my personal Haran is. My personal Haran is. And as you consider what that personal Haran is, it could be, again, any situation where you're experiencing difficulty, where you've gone through suffering. I want you to be honest with God right now. I want you to be vulnerable. This is my Haran right now. And then secondly, I want you to write, this is what I think God wants to do in my life while there. As you write this out, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, didn't we? We sat around the table and we thanked God for the blessings that he's brought about in our life. But I want to ask you an unusual question. Have you ever thanked God for Haran? Have you ever said, God, thank you for taking me through this because of that you have produced this in my life? And if you haven't done that, well, maybe your response to Haran was anger, bitterness, depression, defeat. But do you know what happens when you start thanking God for the hard moments too? Not just the good stuff? It produces a change of mind 
that shapes the way you face the future. So I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Pray, thank him for that Haran. Let me start that prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being the God of grace and mercy and love, but also being the good father who willingly disciplines his children. 